This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. Welcome, everyone, once again to the Evidence for Faith radio program. Hello, my name is Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Michael Arrakis. And together we are Evidence for Faith. We are going to be talking about the evidences for Christianity, Christian worldview, and today in specifically we'll be looking at the texts of the New Testament. Are they reliable? How do we know that what's written in our Bibles is trustworthy? So before we do that, though, just want to put in a plug for the website. You can check us out at evidenceforfaith.com. You can also find us on Facebook under Evidence for Faith as a group, but we are now on iTunes. So if you'd like to download podcasts from previous shows, you can go to the iTunes store and download directly to your MP3 player or phone. So that's a good news. That's exciting, actually. We have special guests in the studio today. Probably some of the specialist guests we've had. In particular, the lovely and gracious Nancy Kendricks, my wife. Say hello, Nancy. Hello, everyone. And she's here because she has brought a friend with her. I brought one of my tiger cubs from my Cub Scout pack in Hamilton, and he is here to fulfill a requirement for his tiger badge, I'll go see it, in communications. So we'd like to introduce Arthur to you. Come on, Arthur. Say hello to everybody. Hi. My name is Arthur. Very good, Arthur. How old are you, Arthur? Seven. Seven years old. Have you ever been on the radio before? No. Well, you act like you are. You're very calm, and your voice is very clear. It sounds like you've been on radio before. No, you haven't? No. Arthur, how long have you been a Cub Scout now? Mm, one year. Hmm. One year, that's a long time. So how many badges do you have to get before you become a, um, uh, from a Tiger Scout to a Cub Scout? I, get, I got my Bobcat first. Okay, very good. What do you want to be when you grow up? A policeman. Oh, cool. Well, we need lots of policemen. So you're going to have to get a little bit bigger, though, I think, right? Be nice and big and strong? Yeah. Okay, cool. And then what will you do as a policeman? Arrest the bad guys. Very good. We like that. We like arresting the bad guys around here. All right, Arthur, thanks for being on the show. That was terrific. Did you know that your voice was going all over southern New Jersey, but also by the Internet, it's going all the way around the world? So there are people hearing your voice all the way over in Lebanon and places like that. Is that cool? You want to say hello to them? Hello. Okay, great. All right, Arthur, go work on being a policeman. Thank you for coming in and, and uh, taking a look at the, the radio show and how we broadcast. Isn't that cool? That is very cool. Good luck, Arthur. All right. Now, before we get into today's topic, we do have one news item. And this is along the lines that we've talked about in other shows about how 
Well, the establishment science is not too happy with intelligent design. So people are uh, losing their jobs, and in this case, even getting demoted over intelligent design in the workplace. You know, Keith, the, this, this news item uh, occurred this past month at uh, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory uh, in Southern California um, in association with uh, a project that's being done at Caltech, and this has to do with the uh, Cassini mission to Saturn. One of their top-level uh, technology specialists uh, was demoted and harassed unlawfully for sharing uh, a DVD on intelligent design with other co-workers. Now, this wasn't even done at the job site. This was information that was exchanged afterwards and, and perhaps in their home, uh, certainly not uh, using the computers and so forth on site during work hours to to share this information, and yet he gets a, uh, uh, a demotion by his supervisor for bringing up uh, topics such as intelligent design. Yep. Yeah, it was, it was incredible. The, the headline is, Supervisors at NASA's prestigious Jet Propulsion Laboratory illegally harassed and demoted a high-level computer systems administrator for expressing support of intelligent design to co-workers, according to a discrimination lawsuit filed in California Superior Court. And what's even more disturbing, uh, Keith, is that none of the co-workers that this information was shared with ever complained to the top-level right. management. That's right. There were no complaints filed uh, against this man. Yep. And the charge, he was demoted for allegedly pushing religion. And that's that was what the description was, because he loaned that DVD uh, supportive of intelligent design. So... It's unbelievable. His name is uh, Coppage, C-O-P-P-E-G-E, -E. Um, and uh, he obviously is being represented by um, um, uh, a free speech lawyer in Southern California, as well as a, um, um, that, that's a first, uh, first Amendment attorney by the name of William J. Becker, um, but he's also being uh, represented by a, um, uh, an attorney by the name of Casey Luskin of the Discovery Institute uh, for the Center of Science and Culture, and um, uh, he's trying to protect his, uh, not only his rights to free speech, but also his, uh, his rights to religious free speech. Right, right. Yeah, one of the amazing things is that the supervisors admitted that they never received a single complaint and that prior to their investigation, no complaints. And even though other employees were allowed to express their Ideas, yeah, any ideological viewpoints, including attacking intelligent design, that was allowed, but not any ideas that supported. Well, this is this design. is uh, going back to uh, uh, expelled, um, you know, right. the movie expelled from uh, two years ago, right? That we that, reviewed on the show. Mm -hmm. So it's happening. Uh, yep, it's, you're not allowed to talk about evolution uh, in an adverse way. You're not allowed to talk about intelligent design uh, as a replacement for evolution. Yeah, it sounds very reminiscent of the emails that were discovered by that global warming group where they were actually trying to get people fired because they disagreed about whether or not the earth was uh, or whether or not the warming was caused by man. So they were trying to get people fired over it and that's that's what's happening with uh, intelligent design. So uh, no progress there, but we'll work on it. The truth will prevail, though. I think so. All right. You are listening to Evidence for Faith, 
the Christian Evidences and Worldview radio program. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. You can join in the conversation by calling 609-398-1020 if you'd like to join us. We're going to be talking today about textual criticism. Okay, that sounds scary and boring and really nightmarish. So why do we need to know about textual criticism? Well, specifically, Keith, we're talking about New Testament. And how can we be sure that what we read in today's Bible is reliable, trustworthy, and true? Right. Because all we have are copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. Yeah, so critics will say, see, you can't trust it, because it's, you know, a hundredth removed from the original autographs. How can you know what's really there? And besides, the critics will also say that uh, it was edited and things were added and all kinds of other uh, crazy things. So how can you rely on it? And then the the average guy sitting in the pews in church, he'll pull out his Bible. They'll say, look at this verse. And he'll look at the verse and then you'll see these little footnotes. Okay, so then he looks down at the bottom at the footnotes at the bottom of most modern Bibles. And they'll talk about all these various texts. This certain text says this, this other text says this, and people sometimes draw the wrong conclusion that, hey, if there's all these different variations, different texts, then I can't know what the what the uh, 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 evangelists actually wrote. What did they? What did the apostles actually write down? Well, nobody really knows because we don't have any of the original. Manuscripts. Is that true? Nobody knows then? Well, so we might as well give up. Why? Well, I, in a matter of speaking, I don't mean that we don't nobody have, would, yeah, we, we don't have the original autograph, we don't have the original right. manuscript because they were handled so frequently and so often and read at so many different gatherings and church meetings and that they fell apart. That's right. And written on like parchment material that doesn't papyrus. Yep. Things that don't uh, hold up mm-hmm. for 2,000 years. So we don't have the actual autographs. We don't have the originals, but it's very easy to put together what the original autographs were because we've got so many different copies. 5,000, more than 5,000 Greek New Testaments alone. If you add in all the translations into other languages, you're talking another 30,000 manuscripts. So we have a tremendous wealth of information, and not only were these copies made over time, but they were also spread out geographically. So copies went from the original manuscripts to different churches in different directions. Some went east, some went west, some went north, and then were copied from those copies. So, you know, people think that it's like that game where you play whisper down the lane and you whisper something to someone, and then they whisper to the next person, and and so on. And when you get past six or seven people, you get back to the original person, and they say what you whispered, and it's nothing like it. People think that's what the transmission of the Gospels is like, and it's not at all. It's more like if I had a recipe for the best, say, Toll House chocolate chip cookies that you've ever had. So I write out this recipe, and I send it to five or six of my closest friends, okay? And those cookies are so good that they make copies also, and they make five or six copies for all of their friends, and so on for several years. This goes on. 
Now I have a fire at my house and the original recipe is lost. What do I do? Oh, no. We'll never know what was in that recipe. Is that true? Call one of your friends. Exactly right. Call one of my friends. Now, what if I, yeah, what if I, I get that, I call that friend and they say, you know, I lost mine, but, but I have friends who I gave to. Okay. So even if the first one's gone and the second level, let's say all six of my friends, the second level, those are all gone. Can I still figure out what the original recipe is? Nodding doesn't work on radio. You can. Yes. Nodding, good. That's good. So um, you, you can figure it out because even though, let's say, we start to collect these recipes back from, from three or four uh, degrees of separation, you look at all of the, re- the recipes, and now some of them are going to vary. Look, yeah. this one has been translated into Russian. And and one of them has cinnamon in it when when all the other that's, ones don't. That's right because somebody liked cinnamon. And the other one had a double portion of vanilla. Right. And or so, maybe somebody is diabetic and they've taken the sugar out. Okay. Or they've used sugar-free chocolate morsels. Right. So so you'd say, oh well, that's impossible. Then I can't put it back together. But you can because those are only going to be a single change, and the rest of the the rest of them won't have that change in it, like the taking the chocolate chips out. Maybe somebody took the chocolate chips out, and then every person that he passed on his recipe to won't have the chocolate chips, but we'll still know that in the original it had chocolate chips because the majority of the ones remaining had chocolate chips. And that's how it's done. So it's really done like that. So, in fact, because we have so many copies, thousands and thousands of texts, we can know exactly what it says. So uh, you can be very confident that the Bible you're reading, no matter what version it is, is accurate and uh, reliable. reliable. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, so um, all right, now, what, what um, mm, let's see, how do we want to attack this, Mike? Let's get into... Well, let's talk about the variations. What are variant readings? Okay. Let's do that. All right. So a variation, then, is one of those differences. Okay, so how many variations are there? Well, there are tens of thousands, actually. And now the New Testament's a very long uh, series of books, so there's a lot of writing in it. And as it was copied, variations developed. Somebody... Uh, didn't uh, correctly copy things down. Um, an example, how how would these kinds of variations, if there's tens of thousands of variations, what kinds of variations are we talking about? Okay, let's imagine that we're at a scriptorium. Okay, so I have an original manuscript that needs to be copied, and I've got ten people that are listening to me, and they're making ten copies. So this is how, prior to the printing press, Prior to mass production, this is how you had to copy texts. So you're dictating as you're right. reading, and they're writing what they hear. Exactly. Okay. So sometimes there will be mistakes made based on the pronunciation of a word. Let's say there's a couple of words that sound very similar. And one example would be ekumen or ekumen. All right. Now, those two words have different meanings, but they sound the same. So let's say... Half the, half the people write down ekumen, 
and half write down Ekumen. Okay. Can, can I spell that for our listening sure. audience? Uh, Ekumen as an echo, E-C-H-O-M-E-N, and then Ekumen, E-C-H-A-M-E-N. Great. Okay, so there's a little bit of a variation of lettering, an O and an A, but they sound exactly the same when you dictate them. Uh, another example might be a spelling difference. All right. Uh, let's say airplane. And in England, it's aeroplane. A-E-R-O-P-L-A-N-E. That's aeroplane. right. Now, which is correct? They're both correct. Exactly right. They're both correct. You know, the British spell center, C-E-N-T-R-E, and we spell it C-E-N-T-E-R. Right. But they're both exactly the same, and they're variations that are acceptable in Webster's. Right. And uh, many things are like names, um, names of places with different spelling ver- uh, variations. So a lot of these are uh, spelling variations. Um, and like we said, the majority of them don't have any significance at all other than things like spelling mistakes or stylistic stylistic uh, differences. And, and the other thing is, Keith, depending on where the text migrated to and was being copied, you're going to have differences in language. For instance, uh, I'm a car guy. I love old cars. have an old MG, and um, they don't call it a windshield, believe it or not, in Great Britain. Okay. They call it a windscreen. All right. Okay. The the drive shaft is not called a drive shaft. It's called a propeller. Okay. An antenna is not an antenna. It's a aerial. Right. So those kinds of differences that would be regional... Correct. Right, regional differences. But they're perfectly acceptable when it comes to that variation because in their own language it still means the same as the original text. Right. So so does this mean then that the Bible has errors in it, right? Does this mean, do we believe that the Bible has no errors in it, or do we believe that the Bible has errors in it? Well, that's that's actually a trick question. The original autographed manuscripts written by the original authors, the 27 books of the New Testament, we believe are God-breathed, God-inspired, and are without error. Right. Okay, now, are you asking me if the copies that we have today have some errors or variants in them? And the answer is yes. Right. There are some variants in them. Right. And are they, are they truly errors? Yeah, I don't think those fit into the category of errors. Uh, those fit into the category of variations. Um, Variant s- readings. Yep. Scribal errors, maybe some scribe got overexcited and thought he ought to add uh, some phrase that he liked. Well, like John the Baptist instead of just John. Right. But if you read further down, you'll see that John was baptizing, therefore they're talking about John the Baptist. So for Christians, we believe that the Scripture was God-breathed, inspired, and error-free so that you can trust it. Now the question is... What exactly did the apostles write? Which exact words? And that's the nice thing is that God has preserved all the evidence for us to look at. He's preserved copies from all different parts of the world, different languages, so we can examine those. And the majority of these variations are taken care of because of stylistic differences. There are some that could possibly render a difference of a meaning. In a, in a verse, but none of those have any bearing on any doctrine of the church. There's no teaching that is overthrown because of a variant reading. If that particular verse 
it's unsure the exact way that it's supposed to correctly be read, then you just don't use that verse. There are plenty of other verses that deal with the exact same topic and the exact same doctrine. So, so again, just because there's a bunch of footnotes at the bottom of your Bible doesn't mean uh, that you can't trust it. And the other, the other thing is, Keith, we, we not only talk about the footnotes at the bottom, but we also have margin notes and other references in the margins. Uh, which can uh, lead us to the same conclusion right. about variant readings and so forth, or other places in the Bible where that same issue is uh, described or talked about. Right. So let's talk about, then, those verses that do have some kind of a significant variation where they it could deal directly with the meaning of that particular verse, Okay. Uh, for instance, should it even be included in the Bible? If if this particular verse isn't in 95% of the Bibles, should we even include that? So let's let's talk about some of the examples of those kinds of variations. Well, for one, one that's very famous that most people know about is the last 12 verses of Mark 16. Mm. Okay, should those be included? What manuscripts are they in? What manuscripts are they missing from? Okay. Uh, how about John chapter 7, 53 through chapter 8, 11? Now, this is the woman caught in adultery. Mm. Okay, A lot of newer translations, you'll see a break in the dialogue, and there will be a, a note that says that some of the early manuscripts do not have these verses. So how do we deal with that? Does that mean because those early manuscripts didn't have it that someone— later on put those verses in or not. So those are the kinds of things we're going to be looking at for the next uh, next half hour or so. How about another one? Uh, Ephesians 1.1. 1, 1. Okay. Some manuscripts say in Ephesus, and some have that left out. Okay. Now, again, this is not a doctrinal issue here. We're not talking about the words in Ephesus aren't going to throw overthrow some doctrine of the Trinity or something like that. But it's still nice to know, was this letter written to the people in Ephesus or not? So it's handy to know. Mm. Yeah, and another example, uh, a good example, is Matthew 5.22, where um, Matthew is talking about about anger, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, you know, the question is, yeah, G- are, G- you, are you allowed to get angry right. without cause? That's right. The verse says... Don't be angry with your brother. Okay, but some have a little word, uh, AK, AK in Greek, and this means without cause. Now, that changes the, you know, total meaning of that verse. So, was Jesus saying, don't ever be angry with your brother, or else face judgment? Or does it say, don't be angry with your brother without a cause? Okay, so that's, you know, that we would like to know the answer to that. That's, that's good enough. Again, it's not going to make a doctrinal issue. It's not going to make a difference doctrinally, but it'd be nice to know. I mean, we've got plenty of other verses that talk about mm-hmm. anger and righteous anger and that kind of thing. So, so we, I think we would all know that the correct answer is that we should not be angry with our brother without a cause. So it's very likely that verse... That single word should be in there. And one of the interesting things is that 
the letter that that word starts with is the same letter that the next word starts with. So you can imagine a scribe uh, trying to copy down this text, and he's looking for the next word, and he sees the same letter, and his eye skips over this small word, AK, and skips over that and goes to the next word that starts with the same letter. So uh, those kinds of things can happen. But usually what will happen is you'll find out that the variation is, again, in a very small number of manuscripts and that it's present in all the others. So those are the kinds of things that we look for. Here's another uh, variant reading, and that's in uh, John 3.13. Okay. Um, Jesus is talking about the Son of Man, referring to himself, and does he say the words, who is in heaven? Okay, now that would be an interesting, again, this is not going to overthrow something about the deity of Christ or something, but it'd be nice to know whether Jesus was actually in that particular sentence claiming that he was still in heaven while he was still kind of an omnipresence thing going on there the Son of Man, who is in heaven. Okay, so so, um, so when you read the footnotes and you get these variations going on, don't be alarmed. They're there for your edification. They're there for you to know so that, you know, somebody doesn't come along later and say, oh, they're lying to you. You know, they're le they left out. It really doesn't say that. It says something else. And translators are lying to you. So what they do, they go ahead and they put the information in and they say, look, here's what we thought. This, this uh, verses is not in these particular manuscripts, and so we're letting you know. So basically, Keith, uh, just to summarize this little um, ditzel that we were just uh, parsing out, there are basically two types of variants that we've just gone over. Some are accidental or unintentional. These are little errors in oversight of the eye or the ear in transcription or um, as we're listening and people are, are, you know, we're taking down a dictation, they might hear something that they quite didn't quite hear correctly uh, since the text was being read aloud, but it's really not going to make that much of a difference in the message that's contained in the actual text itself. That's right. Now, we talked about that echomen, echomen thing. Right. Mm -hmm. That's specifically in Romans 5.1 where um, Paul is talking about we have peace with God or let us have peace with God. Okay. It's not going to make that much of a difference, really, in right. the text right. or the meaning of the entire book of Romans. Yes. So all we're saying is that, you know, d don't get hung up on that. Don't stumble over it. Keep reading and try to absorb the entire message. Exactly. Now, the other type of variant reading then is the intentional variation. What if we had some scribe who wanted to change the text or improve the text? Maybe he didn't like, maybe it was something difficult and he, and it just didn't make much sense to him, so he decided to uh, help correct the text a little bit. Okay, One example would be from um, Mark 1, 1 through 3, where there's this phrase in Isaiah the prophets, in I Isaiah the prophet, okay? And then it gives this quote. Now, the quote is actually from Isaiah and Malachi, mm. okay? So 
the scribe might have thought, well, this is confusing for people, and it's not strictly speaking, uh, you know, maybe he thinks this is kind of inaccurate. So what does he do? Some versions say, in the prophets, okay, instead of in Isaiah, all right? Now, as an example, and we'll get into the different text types or families of text, but this occurs only in the Byzantine Bible. Uh, Byzantine text. Mm-hmm. So the text of the Greek New Testament that was in the uh, eastern part of the church. The Alexandrian text, which was North Africa in that area, and the western text, which was in Europe. Um, those two textual families agree that it should say in Isaiah. Now, um, the other thing to consider is that it makes sense if it says in Isaiah the prophet this, and then somebody wanted to change it to make it more clear that it actually includes Isaiah and Malachi, and so they changed to in the prophets. But it doesn't make any sense to go the other way. So why would anyone, if, it, if the original said in the prophets, why would anybody change it to say in Isaiah the prophet? See, that doesn't make any sense. So this is the difference between internal evidence and external evidence, which we'll get into more in just a moment. If you are just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And this is the show where we help Christians become thinkers and thinkers become Christians. You can check us out at evidenceforfaith.com. That's the number four, evidenceforfaith.com. You can call and talk to us today at 609-398-1020. You know, Keith, one one of the interesting things was, and we're talking about scribes and transcription errors and so forth, uh, a lot of people have to realize that it wasn't until 200 years after these texts were written that the actual canon of the New Testament was put together by the, the church fathers and, and the church leaders. Right. So the, the, the textual scribing, if you will, was not... Um, as carefully done. As carefully done as right. it was, let's say, in the Old Testament days. Right. Um, but once once the canon was put together and it was now considered sacred scripture, the New Testament, the book of the New Testament, it took on a whole new flavor when, when the, the, the scribing, um, the translation was actually done and the transcriptions were done. That's right. So it was done a lot more carefully after everything was canonized. But prior to that, they basically just were uh, copying uh, letters. They, you know, these are historical letters, and okay, this is great. Let's make a copy of it because this is important. So make a copy of it, or they were histories or biographies, and that's how they were uh, thought. Uh, so, so you can see why there would be some early variations would uh, develop in, but um, actually after um, everything was canonized, then you get very, very careful, meticulous uh, uh, transcription being done. And it's interesting that all of the uh, early manuscripts were written in Greek. Yes. And uh, that was considered the, uh, the language of the learned. Right. Um, and, and, and actually, even the um, common day people, you can imagine, we think now that Jesus spoke Hebrew. Um, we believe that he also spoke Aramaic. And when he was speaking to Pilate, undoubtedly he was speaking Greek. So he probably was trilingual and... Greek was that go-to language that everybody could speak throughout the Roman Empire. Um, 
So most of the um, manuscripts are written in Greek. You can see some Aramaic um, aphorisms, it's called Aramaic sayings, that have been translated into the Greek, and scholars can tell that this was actually spoken originally as Aramaic, but has been rendered in Greek because of the wording. So they were written down um, originally in Greek on papyri, again, a material that, you know, is durable but can't last for thousands of years uh, unless it's in exactly the right conditions. Things were also written in uh, parchment, which is really an animal hide that's been cured. Mm -hmm. They would last a little bit longer. Yep. And um, let, let's talk about some of the variations of the uh, New Testament uh, texts. Yeah, the other thing is that then they were written into, they were then translated. So as so originally written in Greek, uh, transported around the world, and in those other areas, they, it was felt that they should be translated into different languages. So in Europe, it was translated into Latin, and this is where Jerome's Vulgate uh, comes from, the Latin translation of the Greek New Testament. And that version of the Bible lasted for a, a thousand years. Mm. So that was the Textus Receptus for a thousand years uh, in the church. Yeah, that was uh, uh, written into the common language or the, the Vulgate, if you will. Yep. Then another one uh, was the Syriac. Right, the Byzantine uh, text. Yeah. It was close to being Aramaic, but not quite. And I guess the best analogy that we can use is it's almost like Spanish, like Portuguese is almost like Spanish, right? But it's not quite similar. Similar dialect, right? And then another early translation was into Coptic, and this is a a, a language that's spoken in Egypt. In fact, there are many Coptic uh, Christians in Egypt to this day that received these early texts. They were translated from Greek into Coptic. Uh, this was typically the Alexandrian. Uh, text that was translated into Coptic, and the Coptic Church is uh, very much under persecution today in Egypt. So we have these three main uh, text types, and they uh, can be delineated by the text, the Greek text itself, and the translations that were typically done into, the language that was typically in that region done into, changed into. But also, you have another uh, witness as to what the actual text said, and that was the early fathers, the early church fathers from those regions. You know, Keith, one of the things that I learned this past week while um, uh, getting ready for this show was that if we had lost every single manuscript known to man but yet we still retained in our libraries, the great libraries of, of the world, like the Alexandrian Library. If we had retained the citations, only the citations of the early fathers of the church, we could actually reconstruct the entire New Testament in its entirety. Yeah, they say except for six verses. I think there's somebody has actually looked at that. So you can recover the entire text just from the references the quotations by the church fathers. So that's an amazing thing. Obviously, they were quoting the Bible all the time. Mm. And what they did is those church fathers living in the regions where that particular text type typically uh, quoted from that text type. So as an example, you have um, Origen and Clement who were 
in the Alexandria, Egypt area. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got uh, Tertullian uh, in Rome, and you've got Chrysostom um, in the Byzantine area. Uh, so uh, Jerome, Augustine, again Western, up in up in uh, Rome, um, and you know so different. You select which church fathers were in that region. And you've got now you've got three witnesses for a particular text type. So you have three different kind of styles of the Greek New Testament: the Byzantine, the Western, and the Alexandrian. And one of the ways that we can actually date those text types is by the early church fathers and what they were writing about their particular area and it and the text that they were alluding to. So we can actually date um, those texts based on the writings of the church fathers. Right. Which is very interesting. So now, where do we get, let's talk a little bit about then how we get to our versions that we have today. What was the development of the text, the Greek text? Well, one of the main places to start is at the printing of the first Greek New Testament. Mm -hmm. So after Gutenberg and the printing press, The first Greek New Testament to be printed was printed in 1514. Now, this particular one was actually not distributed. It was printed, but it wasn't published. It wasn't put out to the common people. So the actual first published Greek New Testament was in 1516, published by Erasmus of Rotterdam. Mm. And Erasmus was a well-known humanist, uh, scholar par excellence, and very, very knowledgeable um, scholar who was asked to put together an official Greek New Testament and get it printed so that they didn't have to depend on scribes writing everything down by hand. So he established the what later came to be called the Textus Receptus and did several uh, editions of it as he added more uh, manuscripts to it, but it was basically based on about five manuscripts. Um, at the time, the earliest ones that he had were dated after the ninth century, so everything that he was working with was dated with after the ninth century. Now you say, oh well, gosh, that, that doesn't sound very reliable, but today we have uh, manuscripts that go back to second century. So we've got amazingly more amount of information uh, that we can use to tell what the original uh, Greek texts said. And if you cross-reference his um, Bible to the second century documents, the translation was par excellence. It was right on. Yes. Yeah, the the King James still remains a very high-quality text, and uh, you know, if you can get past the these and thous, then uh, go for it. Uh, so if you want less of the these and thous, you can get either the New King James or you can get one of the other NASB, NIV, one of the other more popular uh, modern versions. So after this, then uh, another development in Bible history was in 1881, two scholars, Westcott and Hort from Cambridge, published the New Testament in the Greek and their New Testament was based on the discovery of some early Alexandrian texts, uh, one of them uh, called Sinaiticus. And these texts had 
been able to survive because of the dry heat of the desert. And these dry conditions allowed these very, very early papyri to survive. Now, unfortunately, a lot of emphasis has been put on the fact that these are very early. Um, and, and the reason I say it's unfortunate is because each of the other text types also go back you know, to the second century. It's just that their papyri didn't survive. So um, I, I guess I, I, what I'm trying to say is because the earlier text survived, how does that make the Alexandrian text type a better text type? Do you see where I'm going? Yes, you've got physical evidence that it's very early, but there's every reason to believe that the Western text also goes back very early, and the Byzantine text also goes back very early. So sometimes when you look at the footnote in the bottom of your Bible and it says, the earliest and best manuscripts say this, this verse, or do not have this verse, or something like that. What they mean by that is the Alexandrian text has the, that verse, or does not have that verse. So um, when they say earliest and best, um, maybe they should just say the earliest, because they had to make a decision right? They're the ones claiming that it's the best text. Keith, if I can play devil's advocate here, I, I think that one of the reasons why they put so much emphasis on the earliest text and called it the best text was because they were trying to defend the text of the criticisms that were being offered up by the non-believing secular world. It was easier to defend a text that was oldest and preserved in its, in its best condition than it was by saying, well, we have copies of the second century text, but it's dated 900 A.D. I think right. it's just easier. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. So it was a kind of an easier scholarship to do and, um, you know, not, uh, not necessarily the way things ought to be, um, in my view. So my opinion is that one ought to go by a geographical uh, distribution and look and see where have most of the texts been distributed. And if there's a variation, a certain reading that's only in a specific locale, then that to me means that it's less likely that that one's true. So having an older text is great, an older uh, manuscript, but if that older manuscript is different from everywhere else in the world and all the other translations into different languages, why should we necessarily... I mean, it's not uh, the Western text's fault that it's not dry in Europe. You know you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. it, if it was dry in Europe, if it was dry in the Byzantine Empire, then there would be also ancient manuscripts there in the Byzantine text type and in the Western text type. Do you see where I'm going yes. with that? Mm -hmm. So, all right. So, so my view is that we ought to prefer the more widespread reading, the geographical widespread, um, all things being equal. Now, again, of course, that doesn't mean we um, don't consider which is the oldest. We should, but maybe if 
each text type gets a vote. How about that kind of? So that if the Alexandrian and the Western disagree, they agree with each other against the Byzantine, then maybe we shouldn't consider the Byzantine. That may have grown up regionally. Or vice versa, if the Byzantine uh, is in agrees with the Alexandrian against the Western, then we should go that way. So you're looking for consensus. Yeah, exactly. Because one of the other possibilities, one of the other ways to interpret the data is to simply go with what's called the majority text. Mm. Okay, Go with the, let the number of manuscripts vote. Now that sounds good at first, and it sounds reasonable, but when you think about it, the, the, the problem is that the Byzantine text has the most manuscripts, and likely because Constantine used government funds to publish New Testaments. So he was pumping them out. He was basically paying to have them copied and copied and copied and copied. So we've got thousands and thousands of them that are Byzantine. By far, the majority of the early Greek New Testaments are Byzantine. So I don't think it makes much sense to just automatically say that you ought to count up the number of manuscripts and and go by that. I think it makes much more sense that you should go by the geographical uh, region and what was the most widespread. Because if if a variation is going to arise, it's likely that it's going to, obviously it has to arise at the beginning in one spot. And it's likely that that variation will stay fairly local. So that's what we have to consider when we're trying to decide which of these uh, variant readings is the one that ought to go in in our Bible. You know, Keith, one of the interesting things that uh, I came up with um, as I was preparing for this, uh, this analogy of the language of God, we're talking about New Testament, Old Testament, the language of God, the piecing together of all of these variant manuscripts and coming up with a common, common theme and a common um, purpose. When you look at DNA and the Human Genome Project, how they actually mapped out the gene was by taking bits and pieces of the human genome yes. bit by bit by bit and putting it together. And they had to overlap them. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. So if you overlap all of these variant readings, variant texts, and everything else, you can see the little gene mutations here and there and figure out truly what was the original genetic material. That's exactly right. And you, and, you know, in and, fact... But let me finish. Yeah, yeah, so go, go. a little gene mutation here and there really does not alter the individual. I don't care if it's a bacterium or a human being. That's a perfect analogy. Okay, but if you have a major, major meltdown in the genetic material, it's lethal, okay? So what we're talking about here, folks, is that the little mutations that we see here and there in the text that we're talking about don't kill the Bible, Okay. Right. There are, however, some they, Bibles where there are major, major genetic mutants that cause death and deformity, and we're, and we're right. talking about things like the Mormon Bible. We're talking about um, the New World Translation. The New World Translation, which yeah. is Jehovah's Witness Bible. Right. Okay. These will lead to death and destruction. Ooh. Yeah. I, Isn't you that know, an interesting parallel? There? I love that analogy because uh, many people know about how they are actually tracking the human race by looking at DNA, and they can see how the ancient people migrated across the globe from the Middle East, North Africa area. And, uh, and that's exactly the same thing. They can, by putting all that information together, they can essentially see what was the original 
DNA, the original DNA of the first couple, Adam and Eve. You could put that together, and that's exactly what we do in the Greek New Testament. We compare the text types, the different readings, and we can see how they spread across the globe into different languages, and you can piece it all back together until you're extremely, extremely certain um, what the uh, original Greek New Testament said. Now, even in the human genome, if we're still on this uh, analogy, uh, okay, Francis Collins mm-hmm. um, uh, The language gave, of God. Right. He gave mm-hmm. the text. Do you think that if you went into his laboratory, some of these scientists might be discussing certain sections of the genome and saying, well, you know, I'm not really sure about this section. Is it this uh, nucleotide or is it this other nucleotide? Because we've got some variant readings here from our different DNA tests that we've done on different people. Of course Absolutely. they are. Of course they are. It's a perfect analogy. Yes. So, you know, so the, the language of God having to do with his written word, the Logos, and then the language of God, which was Francis Collins' book about the Human de- uh, Genome Project. Yes, it's, it's an amazing thing. The intelligence of the designer, the creator, the information that he wants us to know. He's written it in the similar ways. He's written it on the DNA for us to see uh, that he was the author of life. And he has written it in the Greek New Testament. We don't have the Greek, the originals, so we don't, we can't worship them. We can't put them in the middle of a church and bow down to them. But you know what the Bible is, Keith? What? It's the word that gives you eternal life. That's right. That's right. And I was just doing my uh, Bible study uh, this morning. My well, actually, I guess it was yesterday morning. My devotion, and I was where. Paul is, after Pentecost, is talking to the, the Jews and trying to convert them, and he says, you put to death the author of life. Mm. Now, he's the author of life. He's the author, the one who wrote the book of life, the DNA. But look at that. Is that an attestation that Jesus Christ was God? Mm. He says, you put to death the author of life. Absolutely. Amen. Early attestation of the deity of Christ. You are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And hi, I'm Dr. Michael Arrakis. And you can check us out on evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. So, Keith, we've talked about all of the external Evidences, yes, the variant the, readings, uh, the dating, yeah, the dating. You know whether it's Alexandrian or Byzantine or right. Western. Right. Uh, let's talk about some of the internal evidences as to how we should be interpreting some of these variant readings based on what's written in other parts of the Bible. Right. Scholars have developed rules that help us to decide if we've got different variant readings, um, how uh, we should decide which is the better reading. So one of them is that we should prefer the reading that best explains the origin of the other ones. Mm. All right, and that sort of makes sense. If there are two readings, and we talked about that example of in Isaiah the prophet, or does it say in the prophets? Okay, now, which variation can explain the other variation? Okay. Well, classically, the, uh, the shorter variant reading has been the preferred one 
because there's a thought that the scribe didn't embellish or add to. So that's a that's a kind of a corollary, a sub-rule mm-hmm. of this rule to which one explains the other one best. So one, the, one corollary is if it's shorter. Because right. the, the thinking is that um, they were more likely to uh, drop things out, to leave things, or to simplify things that they thought were too difficult. So... Um, it, it assumes that—oh, uh, actually, I guess it's the opposite. You prefer the shorter one because you think that the scribe is going to try to explain things to you. Like, he's writing out what the New Testament says, and then he says, well, gee, you know, people aren't going to understand that. I know how I can help them out. I'll put in this little phrase, and that will explain it to people. So that's the theory behind that. And now we have to be careful with these rules because you wouldn't always apply that rule. Um, sometimes it would make sense, and then it would explain why there is this variation. So that's one of them. The other thing is, the other corollary is then prefer the more difficult reading. So if it's a difficult reading, um, thinking is that it's more likely to be the one that should be there. If it seems to explain things too easily, uh, maybe a scribe did that. So, And the, the internal evidence should always be corroborating what's written elsewhere. Right. Right, we want to have. We want to depend mostly on the external evidence, on that geographical distribution. So I hope, Mike, that what we have done today is to help people understand a little bit about why there are these footnotes at the bottoms of their Bible, to realize that the King James, the New King James, and the other modern versions (NIV) are all very, very reliable. If you're going in depth into a specific verse then pay attention to the footnotes. Take a look and see if it says this, it's not in the Alexandrian, but it was widespread in the Byzantine and in the Western, then maybe that's actually the preferred reading. So this is why we hire pastors, I think. They can learn Greek, they can do all this textual criticism for us. So, well, everyone, I hope that uh, you've enjoyed today's show. It's a little bit heady, but I think this is the kind of thing that Christians need to know about, and I hope this will help you with your study of God's Word and help to defend against those who would criticize telling you that the Bible's full of errors when you know it's not. You've been listening to Evidence for Faith with Keith Kendricks and Dr. Mike Larrakis. Join us again next Sunday at 4 p.m. for more Evidence for Faith. And remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. <laughs>